Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 45. And as we talked last week, we are going to, as we have looked at the book of Genesis, it's like we've been walking along and now we're suddenly seeing everything from a high-speed train. Uh, that's just kind of the way the story works. The details are there, but it's really kind of, uh, the, as you read Genesis, a certain theme is trying to be pushed along. And so sometimes the larger details are what we focus in on. And then as we get to some of the passages, as we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, we'll slow down and go to a chapter again in even smaller sections. Uh, but uh, as we go through this, uh, we are going through at a rather fast pace. But uh, as we get through, uh, you'll learn what uh, God is trying to reflect out of these passages. Back in 2021, in February of that month, there was a California man uh, there by the name of Paul Grisham. He was uh, at that age, uh, 91 years old, and uh, he received something that he probably never expected to get back. He got his wallet back. In that wallet, it had his driver's license. It had uh, his Navy ID card. It had rations, uh, ration cards punched. It had things like atomic, biological, and chemical attack checklists. Uh, it also, uh, and there had tax withholding statements and receipts for money orders that he had sent to his wife. You say, what was so unusual about him getting his wallet back uh, there in 2021? It's because he lost it back in 1967. He'd lost it in 1967, and uh, you'd say, well, okay, it, somebody found it somewhere unusual. And the answer is yes, they did find it somewhere unusual. They found it in Antarctica. See, Paul Grisham had, back in 1967 and 1968, served a 13-month uh, tour as a Navy meteorologist in McMurdo St Station in Antarctica. And in the process of being there, he lost his wallet. And I've always thought about that. There's not too many places to lose your wallet building-wise there, but he lost his wallet. 2014, they were destroying one of the buildings there at the station to build a new one, and they found his wallet. They found somebody else's wallet and actually a bracelet, a name tag bracelet uh, that they were able to send uh, back to two other individuals. The problem was is those individuals had already passed away. It took them seven years to find Paul. Uh, they went through records. They connected with uh, meteorologists and the like and eventually figured out where he was at. And they were able to, in February of 2021, to deliver it. His response uh, was just this. I was blown away by this. There was a long series of people involved who tracked me down and ran me to ground. And he just uh, beheld these mementos that he had spent time in Antarctica, which he just simply referred to as the ice. That's all he referred to Antarctica as, is the ice. And that seemed to be the thing that reminded him of it. But he was so excited to get something back that he thought he'd never see again. What you have in this story in Genesis chapter 45 is an event like this where brothers didn't think they were ever going to see a brother again. 
By the time we get to chapter 45, uh, we have had uh, approximately 22 years between the time where Joseph's brothers put him into a pit, thinking that they were going to eliminate him either by death and then came with the idea to make a buck off of him. So they sold him as a slave uh, to some traders going down to Egypt. They never expected to be seeing their brother again. And, you know, finding a wallet is kind of a good uh, thing to find after years and years. I'm not sure immediately the brothers were excited to find out that their brother had been found. In fact, as we read through the statement is uh, there as Joseph communicates to them that he is their brother. And uh, as he communicates this, verse number three, his brethren could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence. They don't know what to do. Now, in the sermon today, and just simply, I'm going to put it uh, titled this way, God meant it for good. Okay, these bad things that you might say, his brother selling him off and those type of things, God meant these things for good. I want us to just kind of go through all the details like we did last week of the story of chapter 45, 46, and 47, and then go back to the key points that God wants us to know and understand see as you read the story in chapter 45 you go why didn't uh, joseph's brothers recognize him well he was speaking in a different language granted he had put on 22 years but uh, he's uh, probably bald without a beard with makeup on with some sort of headdress on uh, speaking a different language they haven't in their dealings with joseph to this point figured out that he was even a hebrew they had no idea that he was one who could speak their language because he's been speaking through interpreters to him, to them. So at this point where Joseph suddenly says, I'm your brother, is a shocking thing to them. They can't believe that this is the case. And he goes through and, and communicates to them how these things had gone on and these good things that had happened. And even though it seemed like it was something bad, God had done good things, not only for him, but for the nation of Egypt. And he communicates this. And as you read the story, it is kind of an emotional moment. The Egyptians were not known for their emotion. But verse 2 of chapter 45, he's crying so loud before he communicates this to his brother that the people that are outside the building can hear him cry. So obviously, the Egyptians would have been shocked by this because they weren't typically emotional individuals. And Joseph's communicating this to his brother. As he goes back, he begins to tell them that they need to go back and tell the father, verse number 13, tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you've seen, and ye shall haste and bring my father hither. You need to go do this. Well, you've got an expansion of the story. People are beginning to talk as Joseph has gone into closed doors with these individuals that are there and he's been crying that it suddenly gets communicated. Joseph's found his brothers. The Pharaoh finds out about this. So the Pharaoh of the land calls in the brothers, as we read in verse number 16, and he begins talking to the brothers there. And he communicates to them, you can have the good of the land. You come here and live. In fact, don't even worry about many of your goods back in the land that you're from. We'll take care of those supplies when you get here. 
Just go back and get your father and your families, your wives, your children, uh, get all of those things, your animals, bring them back. We'll give you some wagons. We would say today's vernacular semi-trucks, and we'll send those things back for you to be able to haul these supplies back. You go and do this. We want you to be here. I, as the Pharaoh, I'm telling you this. Not just your brother who's second in command. I'm telling you to come back. And you read at the end of the story, as we did uh, there in chapter 45, they went down out of Egypt, and when they come back to the father, they tell them that Joseph is alive. And Joseph really does not believe them. Verse 26, Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel, who was also known as Jacob, said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. And you have in chapter 46, which we didn't read, but you have this time where he's about to leave the land of Egypt and God meets with him, tells him it's okay for him to go. And we'll come back to that portion of the story uh, as we get towards the end of the sermon. And God tells him, you can go down to Egypt. It's fine. You're not doing anything wrong. Other occasions, relatives had left uh, when they shouldn't have, and God had to do certain things to call them back. But he says, it's fine for you to go. And you have this accounting as you go through in verse number eight. If you read through it, you suddenly hit a whole bunch of names that many of them you can't pronounce, and you're going, what's going on there? Well, it's recounting all the individuals that are coming from the land of Israel, well, it wasn't the land of Israel, it was Canaan at the time, uh, but are coming from there down to Egypt. And it's all the, the sons of Jacob, their families, their children, there's children, children, there's grandchildren at this point. And you go through all of the, the numbers there, and when you finally get to the end, and you look at verse number 27, it says, the sons of Joseph which were born with him, in Egypt were two souls, and all the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. You go, okay, what's threescore and ten? That's 70 people. Now, side note here, this is a very important thing for people to understand that are reading this book for the first time. You know, who's reading this for the first time? Well, the people that were, well, released from Egypt that were following Moses in the wilderness. Moses is writing Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to give them a copy uh, of this forever, of what God wanted them to know. And what they needed to know is that their history was this. They were children of Israel, slash Jacob, and his family came down as 70. And when they receive this message, they're alert to something because when you go through the book of Numbers, they know how many left Egypt. As you read the book of Numbers, it's called Numbers because you have the numbers of the nations, the tribe of Israel counted out at the beginning and at the end of the 40-year journey in the wilderness. And you find that there's 602,000 men over the age of 20. I mean, in this counting, they're counting everybody. I mean, they're, they're just concluding everybody they possibly can in these numbers and going, okay, who can we find in this? Oh, there's 70 that are going down to the land of Egypt. The people that were reading this and going, 
and looking around at the huge uh, mass of territory covered by all of these tents, all of these people that are living there, and they realize that there's almost, if you figure it out, 600,000 men over the age of 20, you're probably dealing with numbers like 1.5 to 2 million people that are there, and they're going, God took us down to Egypt 400 years ago, 70 people, and look at where we're at now. I mean, that's the importance of having this listing that's here. Sometimes we read through our Bibles and it's like, okay, names, 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 names. Okay, okay, let's get somewhere else. But the purpose was is for these people to realize God brought us down here as a small group of people. And we're now leaving as a nation of people. Two million people that are here that God had brought them out. And so the names that are all there that might uh, hinder us from reading something like this because it's just hard to read. It was important for the nation of Israel to see this, that God had done something in their history over 400 years, that he had made them a people. As you see in verse 28, that Israel or Jacob sends Judah before uh, him unto Joseph to direct his face into Goshen and they came in the land of Goshen you see a little bit more that Judah is leading the family out now and this is part of the story of Genesis as we looked at it and Joseph goes out verse 29 made ready his chariot went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while and Israel said unto Joseph now let me die since I've seen thy face because thou art yet alive and you read the rest of the story joseph is uh greeting his brothers there he's saying you come to this land here let me introduce you to the pharaoh as if they needed to be introduced but they were bringing jacob with them there was a discussion in the middle of this in verse number three of chapter 47 that when they meet Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks him a question that says, what is your occupation? They said unto Pharaoh, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our father. We find out that the Egyptians really don't like shepherds. There's something in their culture that doesn't really associate if you're the upper class with people that are like that. But in this case here, these shepherds are standing in the presence of the king, having a, an audience there. And he's listening to them. But then you get to this story as Pharaoh begins to talk to these individuals. Look at verse 5. Pharaoh spoke unto Joseph and says, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. Uh, in, uh, is before thee. In the best of the land, make thy father and thy brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, make them rulers over my cattle. Verse 7, and Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. This indicates the fact that he's probably setting him before Pharaoh. He's older. He has to sit down, probably not seeing as well. Verse 8, and Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of my years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. And have not attained to the days of the years of the lives of my father in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. We find a few details here. We find out the age of jo or Jacob at this time. But here you have a unique experience where here you have the Pharaoh of the land. At that time, he's the ruler of the world. The whole world is coming to Egypt to be fed. He's the one in charge. 
He can tell people, yes, you can eat food. No, you can't. He's the ruler of the world. And he is being blessed by Jacob, which is irony because here you have the shepherd that's from a foreign country who is actually showing he's in a higher position because he's blessing Pharaoh. Kind of an irony, and we'll talk about the details of why that's important. But then you get through the whole of the story and you read from chapter, uh, chapter 47, and you read verse 13, and you just follow the story through to verse 26. You find out what happens in those five years. Joseph told his brothers, there's five years yet of famine. Things are going to happen. We'll take care of you. And you go, does it really happen? Well, for five years, Joseph, uh, through different means and ways, gets the people the food that they need, sometimes buying property from them, sometimes getting uh, other things from them. So you get to the point that everybody in the land is attached to Pharaoh and Joseph. Uh, they have responsibility either by land or property to them that Joseph does take care of them. You get to the end of the five years and everybody's got the food that they need. And so you kind of go, ah, oh, good ending of the story. And that's where we're going to stop for right now. Now, all those details are there, but in the middle of all of this, there's two emphases that take place in this story we just went through. One is this, is that there's an emphasis on God. You know, that's important because it's the Bible. Yes, it is. But there's an emphasis on God and His working that is one of the highlights in all of the Scripture because of things that are said. In the emphasis of God, there's three things that are emphasized about God in this story, and one of them is this, is that God controls events even during the worst of times. God controls events, even in the worst of times. You say, where do you get that from? Go back to chapter 45. And when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, listen to what his statement's like, because he's trying to alleviate, to calm down their fears, the agitation that they probably suddenly feel. He tells them that his name is Joseph, he is Joseph, and then look at verse number four. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Okay, you did this. But, verse five, now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Why? Well, here's the answer. Because God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath a famine been in the land, yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. And now it was not you that sent me hither, but God and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye now and go up and get my father. Now you see there three times he makes it very clear. God sent me. It wasn't you that sent me packing. It wasn't you that sent me on a way that I didn't want to go. No, God was the one that got me here. See, 
we would look at those circumstances and if we had a human perspective without god on it you'd go what a miserable life this young man lived for almost 13 years thrown out by family unloved by family sold to people who really didn't care but they were making a dollar off of him sell him to a man by the name of potiphar who's the captain of the king's guard he's a slave in the household though he does succeed as a slave in somebody's house he's still a slave and then he gets accused falsely i mean if there's any great injustice in his life just look at what happens in the fact that he's falsely accused he has gone throughout his life and tried to do what is right and he gets falsely accused and the accusations get believed and he's hauled to jail and he's there for several years he does succeed when he's in jail but you're like he's in jail who wants to be in jail nobody no one wants to be a slave no one wants to be a prisoner and he's had all of these things happen to him and you go oh what a horrible god this man must serve and you know i'm guessing because joseph was human during those times there were those thoughts in his head god must be a miserable god to do this but as you see in his testimony he clings to god in those circumstances and by his testimony here he is proclaiming the fact that even in bad events god is behind everything it's not accidental it's not something that you go okay why did this happen because with the thought here god controls events even during the worst of times emphasizes a second thought that god places whoever he wants in positions of power in places of responsibility god does this because as you have in the story here verse number seven or excuse me verse number eight there's a weird statement that he makes joseph says he was made a father to pharaoh you're like wait a second how how does that work that he becomes a father of pharaoh when he's got a father by the name you, you, you follow it through how could he claim this that he's a father to pharaoh position of authority over pharaoh well think about this what does a father do for his children now when they're younger it's usually punish them and make sure that they're in line and do everything i mean that's kind of the major thing that goes on in life what does a father do when children get older he gives them advice i mean here he is he's going i'm like a father to pharaoh i'm giving him advice i'm giving him counsel i'm telling him what he ought to be doing god has put me in this position it's not that i got here by accident it's not that i climbed on other people's backs to get here god put me in this place and what people need to recognize is that the bad times of life those things happen you know why because god gets you to where he needs you to be at you would sometimes not go in the directions that you were uh, eventually in had god not changed your course 
If God had not put in a roadblock, if God had not suddenly shifted plans, made things go differently than you ever expected, and you're going, why, God, did you do this? Why the financial loss? Why the loss of a relative? Why the change of position in life? Why did these things happen? And, and then if you really have a, an eye that's willing to consider that maybe God is good, and God is merciful, and gracious and you look back on life you suddenly go i would have never gotten here i would never be doing these things i would not have these opportunities had these and we put it in quotes here bad things hadn't happened to me if god hadn't taken me through those difficult times i would never be where i'm at joseph is recognizing that He's going, if I hadn't been in prison, if I hadn't been a slave, I'd never be here in Egypt. I'd never be giving counsel to Pharaoh. I wouldn't have stopped him from making bad decisions in good times when good storm or when good uh, harvesting is going on and he makes bad decisions and doesn't plan for the bad times that he was going to have for seven years. He would never have been there. He would have been still residing in the land of uh, Canaan with his brothers who hate him and the like. Had God not used the sinful intentions of his brothers, the people wanting to make money, those that are, well, false and evil, such as Potiphar's wife, if it hadn't been for individuals like that, Joseph recognizes that he would have never gotten to where he's at. But God was good. And getting him to send him before others to take care of problems in advance, even though he went through some horrible circumstances, God was preparing him to take care of others. Getting him right where he needs to be at. And God controls events even during the worst of times. God places whoever he wants in positions of power, and it may not be the course that we would expect that he does this. But the third thing you see about God is that God directs the paths of his people. You see this specifically as we get to chapter 46. In verse number one, we went over it, but we said we'd come back to this. But it says Israel, and just put Jacob here, Jacob took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in visions of the night and said unto and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make thee of thee a great nation. I will go with thee unto Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And you go, what does that mean? Uh, that was a regular thing. Jews still do it today. That when somebody dies, they make sure they close their eyes. He says, Joseph's going to be there when you die. So go down to Egypt. Do this. But you say, what's going on here? Well, Jacob had lived in the central portion of the land of Canaan. He had not spent much time down in Hebron and uh, in Beersheba. That's where Abraham and Isaac had spent most of their time. 
they lived here. Uh, as you have the stories, they dug wells here. That's why it's called Beersheba, the well of seven or the well of swearing that's here. Uh, they lived here. In fact, Isaac went and built an altar in Beersheba. And what you have here is that as Jacob is coming out of the land and he's going further south and he's getting to the last portion of the land there. Remember when Israel referred to itself, it referred, if you wanted to refer like the United States does from sea to shining sea, you know, we're talking about the Atlantic to the Pacific. Well, here you have, uh, if you refer to the land of Israel, you referred from Dan to Beersheba, which is the far south as the boundary lines would go for the land of Israel. Well, here he is. He's on the edge of the land there. He stops by Beersheba, and there's this altar that seems to still be there that his father had put up there in the worship of God previously as a testimony to God. And he stops here. He offers sacrifices to God, recognizing that he serves the God of Isaac and of Abraham. That's why he says he's offering sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. This is a God that's been a part of his family line all this time. And what God uh, tells him is that it is okay for you to go down to Egypt. And you go, well, why was it okay for them to go down to Egypt? Well, back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, God had told Abraham, your family is eventually going to go to a land outside of here uh, and they're going to stay there for over 400 years. We're now told where the there is. It's Egypt. Because God says, this is okay for you. This is something that I already determined long before you were even born. That you and your family would end up in the land of Egypt and you would stay there. It's okay for you to do this. I'm giving you the go-ahead to go ahead and do these things. And when you go to a land that's outside of the land of promise, when you go there, I'll be with you. Now, this is important to understand. Back in, in certain uh, cultures, and even some today, there is this belief that gods are subject to certain territories and certain lands, and they're ineffective someplace else. Okay? They're territorial. You know, some gods are the gods for the hills, and some gods are the gods for the valley. Some gods are only for a certain nation. And you can only serve that God in that land. You can't serve Him someplace else because that God's not over there. When God says to uh, Jacob, I will be with you when you go down to Egypt and I'll be with you when you come back up to this promised land is what He's just simply communicating is, I'm the God that is everywhere. I'm the one God. These gods that people make up that can only be in certain places, that can only take care of certain situations, those are false gods. I'm the God who can be anywhere. I'll be with you wherever you go. Even when you go down to Egypt, I'll be with your people. And you say, well, 400 years later, they're in misery because Pharaoh has got them in slavery. Did God somehow abandon them? You're going, uh-uh. You forget he's going to, by strong hand, deliver them right out of this land without them ever fighting a single battle. God's going to bring a series of ten plagues to release them from this land. God's with them. In fact, that whole 
whole scenario of the ten plagues is God battling, and uh, really it's a one-sided battle, God's uh, going after the gods of Egypt. They're limited in their capabilities, and God is just simply, with each plague, doing something that proves that that God's a fake, a fraud, has no power. But what you have here is that God says, I'll be with you, your family, it doesn't matter, remember, and I'll bring you back up to the land, and I'll be with you there. And so even when individuals are, well, going through the worst of times, they get moved. As we said, this is, uh, and we've been using this term to describe the moves of Joseph. Now we can say this for his whole family. These are providential relocations. God is providentially in His plan going, I'm going to move you to a new place to carry out certain things that I need you to do. And sometimes uh, moves can be uh, frightening things. And at times you can shake your head, why is this going on? But God in His providence is getting His people right where He needs them to be at. He's going to be with them in those times. And this is the last statement that God makes. For how long? 400 years. God doesn't talk to the nation of Israel again in this kind of format where he directly talks to people until Moses is in the Sinai desert and God talks to him through the burning bush. 400 years later. The last communication, direct communication of God with his people is this. I will be with you wherever you're at, wherever you go, I will be with you. And that is uh, something for that nation and for us in in, uh, modern times to realize no matter where we're at, what circumstances, what position of power we're in or not position of power, wherever we're at, our God is with us wherever we go. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us. He hasn't forgotten about us. But He's with us at all times. I mean, Joseph here uh, in this story highlights the fact God is in charge, good or bad. And he's with you through the good and the bad, regardless of what you may feel and what you may think. Which then brings us to an emphasis on not God, but now on God's people, people who claim to be followers of God. And the first thing I just want to simply say is this, is that God's people have no reason for bitterness or retaliation. God's people have no reason for bitterness or retaliation. You go, why? Well, we've just gone through the statement there uh, in chapter 45 of Joseph's statements to his brothers. And he acknowledges the fact, you did me wrong. You sold me into slavery. You did not like me. You hated me. But I'm seeing the hand of God using people like you. God got me where I needed to be at. God's the one that's in charge. And even though Joseph has a position of power now, he could make life miserable for his brothers. Who's going to stop him? 
There's only one person that could, and that would be Pharaoh. Who's going to stop him from doing bad things to his brothers? And you say, are they deserving of it? Oh, you know, in our opinion, if we had suffered through that, oh, yeah, they are. They're worthy of all sorts of punishment. They're all worthy of all sorts of vengeance and retaliation for years of misery that they caused on their brother. But Joseph looks at this and goes, God has taken care of everything. I'm not going to be the one that carries out vengeance upon you. Because what I'm seeing is God got me where I needed to be at, accomplishing the purposes that I need to be doing, and I'm not going to retaliate to you. In fact, there is not, he's not even saying I'm not going to retaliate against you. I have no ill feelings to you. You're going to get to this later on when Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob dies. The brothers think, oh, well, Joseph's just being nice to us because dad's alive. And now that dad's dead, he's going to go after us. And he has to clear that up again. No, I have no bitterness to you. God did this for a reason. And for us, Joseph serves as an example that God's people have no reason for bitterness and retaliation. Once put it this way, there would be no retaliation from Joseph, not just because he had seen that they had changed. And they had changed. You see some of the changes that go on even in the life of Judah. They had changed. But because he had a proper understanding of how God had been working in his own life. He had seen God's hand in his life, how God had done certain things. One is called this is passage of Joseph. This is the theology of reconciliation. Without it, there would be no, only bitterness and blame, rancor and revenge. This principle is what uh, that whoever is spiritual will perceive the hand of God in the course of events and therefore be able to forgive what others have done. No one who believes in the sovereignty of God in the affairs of life can bear a grudge or take revenge on other people. I mean, one put it this way also, the doctrine of God's sovereignty allows Joseph to see things differently from a worm's eye view. His story reads like a nightmare, a cacophony of outrageous excesses afflicted upon him. A rational conclusion that it is all absurd from this perspective would have made him an existentialist, a cynic, or a nihilist, which basically is the idea of no hope. But he cho chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. This enables him to forgive and encourage his brothers to do the same. I mean, if, if Joseph had been like a lot of people in this world, they might go, oh, bad things happen to me. Well, you know what? I'm just a lightning rod. I have all sorts of bad things happen to me. Oh, well. You go, that's not a way to live life. Or he could just simply say, well, we're all going to just disintegrate and disappear in the end. So, oh, well. Or he could have been uh, one who well, gave his life and basically chewed his own soul up. Remember we talked uh, the last two Sundays on Psalm 37 and that idea of fret not yourself against evildoers. You go, what's that word fret mean? It means don't burn yourself up. You're doing the burning up. 
Many times the people that you're upset with don't have an idea that you're upset with them. They have no knowledge that you're offended by them. They have no idea the hurt that you're carrying around and you're doing nothing but destroying yourself. And you have Joseph. He's got 10 people to be really angered with. And that, you know, the list keeps adding on. Potiphar's wife, Potiphar not paying attention. I mean, he, he could just go on. All these people have made my life miserable. But he had seen God's hand and just simply goes, God's a good God. He's getting me to where I need to be at. God is the one who will take care of these individuals. I'm not the one that has to worry about the justice that needs to be carried out. I mean, he didn't have the scripture yet, but vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'll take care of things. Okay, you just take care of what you've been called to, what God has moved you to, what your next uh, thing is. There's too many individuals, even in Christian circles, that somebody has offended them and they carry it for 50 years to their own hurt. They aren't willing to forgive individuals and just simply recognize God has gotten me where I'm at. The things that have happened, good and bad, have been by the hand of God. God's gotten me here. And that God is the one who ultimately hands out justice. Now, if I understand God's mercy and grace... I understand the fact that I deserve a whole lot more too in God's justice category. But if you are one who believes that God is in charge, that He is there, He's always there, He's observing all these things, you can put aside some of these bitternesses and prejudices that you may have and go, it's in the hand of God. I'll let him take care of it. I'll take care of the things that I'm responsible for, that he's moved me to, got me here to take care of. But I'm not going to hold on to this bitterness, this anger of somebody who did me wrong all those years ago, and I've not been able to give it up. Joseph is a perfect example of just simply saying, God's the one in charge. He'll take care of it. Just do the things you need to do that God's called you to do. He serves as an example that God's people have no reason for bitterness and retaliation, especially if they understand what God is doing. But we also see this, that God's people are a blessing to whomever they connect with. Here you have Jacob, who goes into the presence of Pharaoh and blesses Pharaoh. And what, what did God say to the grandfather of Jacob about his descendants? Back in Genesis chapter 12, we've got to go back a ways, but uh, you have this promise that was made to Abraham. Verse 1, it says this, The Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Okay, You're going to be a blessing to those that you come in contact with, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here you have at the end of the story here, Okay, we're, we're putting together details here and realizing as we go through the book of Genesis, there's details given and things that aren't talked about we don't need to pay attention to. But in this case, you have the story. Jacob comes in and he's with the Pharaoh 
the ruler of the world, and he's able to be a blessing to the Pharaoh. A foreigner. A person who's outside uh, the, the, the people of blessing, you might say. And yet he's a blessing to that individual. You have the whole story coming around. Abraham, your family's going to be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing to all nations. We'll go down to Egypt. We'll show you. He's a blessing to the Pharaoh. Joseph, by God having him there, is a blessing to the nation of Egypt and to all the world. And so it ought to be for God's people with whomever they come in contact with. They ought to be a blessing. The greatest gift of blessing you can give them is to let them know of the great gift that God has given. The best gift. That's His Son, Jesus Christ. But it ought to be that also, as that, that message is given, that we ought to be ones who are blessing others, doing good to them, and reflecting our God that we follow. The God that we're, uh, one that we're saying is our God. We ought to reflect His character. That He gives good you think about what Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount says, he gives sun, both to the evil and the good. He gives rain, both to the evil and the good. Things that are needed, we ought to be doing the same. For those that we are in contact with, there ought to be the blessing of salvation that's communicated both by word and reflected in a life to others that they ought to say that person, you know, what ought to be said about your life is that they go, that person was a blessing. That person was an encouragement. That person was a help. That ought to be said about God's people. You go, why are God's people like that? Because they're reflecting a God that is like that. And so, as we see, God's people are a blessing to whomever they connect. So in closing and looking at this passage, for me, I was just simply going through and going, okay, what, what is the best thing uh, to come away with from a section like this? Three chapters racing through. And just simply realize this, Old Testament stories are for the benefit of us. They're given to us as examples or in samples or types, as uh, the Scripture in the New Testament says. Joseph recognized the workings of God in every day, whether good or bad. Since God's in charge, He'll revenge evil. He'll pay back evil as He sees fit. He will do it because He is just. We can't think of ourselves as God's instruments of vengeance. You know, we, we sometimes get that statement confused. I will repay. You know, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we forget that's a saith the Lord statement, not saith myself. Bitterness hurts too many people for too long sadly even god's people it, it affects them over and over and again and they're not as effective as they could be because they're still seeking well some sort of restitution or justice for something that's been done to them in the past and yet they ought to be like joseph who's simply going god's put me here what can i do as part of God's plan in this situation, right here, right now, not something that happened 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, and I still can't give that up. 
If you believe that God is a good God and that He's a God that's in charge, then you need to give up that bitterness that you have towards certain individuals. You go, really? They, they haven't asked for forgiveness. You still forgive them. You have that attitude towards them. God will take care of them if they're needing to be taken care of. Let God do that job. You just simply do what God's called you to do here and now where He's placed you and do it to His glory, be a blessing to those that are around you that are immediately in your impact circle that you can have influence with and do that. Be like Joseph who knew his God, saw his God, and acted as if his God really did exist and have a role in his life and could take care of things. Let God take care and carry over, as I was thinking about it, cast all your care upon him for he careth for you. Let all those bitternesses and anxieties hand them over to the Lord. He'll take care of them. And you do what he's called you to do today to his glory. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Joseph. Sadly, we too often read his story and are thankful for what happened in his life, but we aren't like Joseph because we just want to hold on to the bitternesses and the slights and the hurts that others have done to us. We see in Joseph one who knew you well, loved you and allowed you to take care of things that he didn't have the ability to take care of or didn't have the responsibility to take care of. Lord, there are some in this congregation that as I speak about bitterness and hurt and slights, visions of certain individuals come to mind Lord, we pray for your people today that they would give up that bitterness. That they would not live a life still stewing in things that people have done to them in the past. But that they would look to the present and go, what would you have them to do now? and give the cares and the hurts over to you, realizing you're a God that can do justice far better than we ever can, that you can lay out uh, punishment or chastening far better than we ever could. Lord, help us to give over our bitterness and just do what you've sent us to do where you've had our course go, where you've got us now, Lord, help us to magnify you and be a blessing to whoever's path we cross. May we be a reflection of the Savior who gave so much to people that offended Him 
cast him out, that cursed him, that put him on a, a cruel cross. And yet he was willing to cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May we be like Joseph, like the Savior, and give up our hurts and let you deal with them and do what we need to do to accomplish the blessing that you have us set out for. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.